Today's episode of the Film Stage Show is brought to you by Mubi, the online streaming cinema for your free 30-day trial. Go to mubi.com slash filmstage. back ladies and gentlemen to a brand new episode of the film stage show the movie review podcast for the filmstage.com as always i'm your host brian j rowan with me today we have michael snydell hello i'm a part of the jesse j fan club i uh love jesse j and anytime <laughs> that i can play a song that is by her or features her i am totally down um if we ever have an opportunity oh, for me to sounded like katie perry no she's better than katie perry okay well uh, if there's ever an opportunity for me to do a uh, bang bang into the room, I'm just going to play the whole damn song. Uh, t- copyrights be damned. Anyway, uh, we also have Bill Graham. Woo! And a special guest today to talk about Domino, the newest film by Brian De Palma. It's Adam Naiman. Hey there. What is up, Adam? Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Why don't you uh, do us a favor and introduce yourself to our audience? Uh, I am a very stressed out Toronto Raptors fan, uh, <laughs> anticipating uh, Game Six of the NBA Finals. But and I'm a film critic for uh, The Ringer and a contributing editor at Cinemascope. Um, write for a bunch of publications. Longtime writer for Reverse Shot and um, written a couple books on movies, including a book on the Coen Brothers called The Coen Brothers. This book really ties the film together, which came out last <laughs> fall. Awesome. And what are your thoughts on Jesse J? Uh, my thoughts on Jesse J, you know, pretty good. Um, you know, the, the, the slight distinctiveness that she has uh, raises her above 10 other people who, whose name I couldn't tell you or pick out of a lineup. So <laughs> those people who are, you're constantly just like, Oh, is this, is this X? And someone's like, no, that's, that's no, they've been dead for two years. This is why. And it's like, Oh, well, you know, that sucks. No, she's, 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 she's pretty good. You know? Yeah, no, I get it. She's got a powerhouse voice. I like it. Yeah. Um. Anyway, uh, so we're here to talk Domino, the newest film, again by director Brian De Palma. Before we do that, the usual few, the usual first few things. Uh, find us on Twitter at Film Stage Show, Facebook The Film Stage Show. Give us your money by going to Patreon.com/slash The Film Stage Show, where you can get access to our super cool Slack channel and get first crack at all of our raffles. Again, that is patreon.com slash show. You can email us your thoughts, podcast at filmstage.com. And go online, give us a comment rating on iTunes. Uh, in addition, we are brought to you by Mubi, the online streaming cinema. Um, <laughs> for certain, the, There's, there's going to be an issue now where every time I think of Mubi, I think about that stupid article that happened while I was on vacation that I still somehow found the time to see and get angry about where someone posted a clip of uh force majeure oh and there and like some i can't even remember was it the verge or something or io9 or gizmodo was like hey uh just so everyone knows that clip is fake and it's like it's technically from a movie that doesn't make it fake and i realized that at the end of the clip it literally says playing now on movie <laughs> Anyway, it's always fun to get angry about stuff. Uh, you don't have to get angry about the selections on Mubi, though. They've got some great, great, great stuff that's on there now, such as Citizen Four, Edge of the Knife, 
and Holiday. They've got a bunch of really awesome stuff that's still happening. Their can takeover is still going on. And they have uh, adaptations. So you can see Josef von Sternberg's Anathen, which is a thing that I should have tried to uh, figure out how to pronounce before I talked about it. Yeah, I can tell that you started reading that reading that title and you were like, oh, well, it's no. one of those things where I saw it and I was like, oh, I really want to watch this. This is something I've wanted to watch for all. And then I realized that I've just never said the, the word aloud before. Sure. So, yeah, um, the synopsis is set during the dying stages of World War Two. Anna DeHaan tells the story of 12 Japanese seamen stranded on a forgotten island for seven years, accompanied only by Kiko. A young Japanese woman, all rationality and discipline are soon overcome by the struggle for power and control. So yeah, I mean, come on, that sounds awesome. If you would like a free 30-day trial of Mubi, you can get one by going to mubi.com slash filmstage. Again, that is mubi.com slash filmstage. All of that front matter out of the way, we can now move on to our feature review, which again is Brian De Palma's newest film, Domino. Um, this, is a, this is a movie that's out. It's on VOD, limited theatrical release. It stars, uh, I'm going to start with Guy Pierce because I love Guy Pierce. But if you are a Game of Thrones fan who is suffering from the uh, withdrawal shakes following the finale, this also has Nicolaj Coster Waldo and Carice Van Houten in it. So yeah, let's uh, play that trailer. So you were there when he was attacked? I was upstairs in the crime scene. Moss was down on the fourth floor with the suspect. We just apprehended a man on Tetris Street. Are you Farouk Harris? All right, so this is a movie about a Copenhagen police officer, played by Nicholas Costa-Waldo, whose partner is attacked while they are apprehending a suspect, and who finds himself running afoul of CIA agent Guy Pierce while attempting to find the man who uh, injured his partner. Um, I want to give a special shout-out to the man who plays the man who attacks his partner, and that is Eric Abuyanye. Anyone want to help me out there? I, I don't know. I was just going to say that he's also in Femme Fatale and fantastic yes. in that. Yeah. He's, yeah. uh, this guy has like a real face, like a cinema face. And I have seen him in a bunch of stuff and he's, uh, he's worth a shout out up front in this movie. Um, a tough role in this too. Super tough role. We're going to talk about it <laughs> because <laughs> I almost didn't want to bring him up because I didn't want, I didn't know how much of how important he is and what he is doing in this movie to spoil up front. And then I remember this movie, no matter what nice things we will say about it, is sort of a mess. And so it probably doesn't really matter. Um, so let's start with our nutshell thoughts on this film before going into spoilers. Adam, why don't you kick us off? What are your all around general thoughts on Domino? Well, I tried to take a good crack at it for ringer. I'm lucky there that, um, you know, the word counts are, are generous. So 
you know, rather than having to try and nutshell it, I was able to to get about 2000 words down on it. And I guess maybe the first thing I'd say about it is that I think it justifies that length of, uh, of analysis. It, it's an interesting movie. You yeah. know, I mean, I'm not saying that the value judgments of good and bad don't matter, but they are kind of secondary to kind of like the, the kind of forensic tourism that you can do with it. Um, I wrote, and I mean, maybe this is a, a quick, catchy way to say it before I let you guys pick up on it. It's that there's that famous Howard Hawks quote where it's like, if you have three good scenes and no bad scenes, you have a great movie. <laughs> and this is kind of a case of like three pretty distinctly De Palmian scenes, one of which is just really insanely, weirdly virtuosic. So I guess it meets the three good scenes criteria. But then there's plenty of bad scenes or arguably mm. bad scenes or, or inarguably mediocre ones. So it's a very uneven movie that said it's June and I'm hard pressed to think of an American movie that's come out this year that I actually care as much about as I do this one. So that's a, that's a really good way to put it. I feel like <clears throat> I don't know that I'm going to ultimately come up favorable on this, but it is, I have enjoyed thinking about this and feel like I'm going to enjoy talking about this more than I will. Most of the movies that I like can give a full on positive reaction yeah. to. Yeah. All right. So Michael Snydell, what about yourself? Yeah, I think I, I think I um, feel similarly that, yeah, just right up front, this is very much a De Palma movie. And when he does get his chance to do, you know, everything from the split diopters to the very deliberate, you know, cross cutting, like it just, it works gangbusters. Now, I, I don't know. I think I might even be a little, a little kinder to some of the weirdness here. I do want to mention uh, there's been some contentious talk about whether De Palma has completely disowned this movie. So I, I, I believe, and anyone can correct me if they've heard otherwise, but I believe that an original quote um, was taken out of context where he said that this wasn't his cut. Now, what I've actually heard it clarified as he didn't do color correction. He didn't do final color correction. He didn't do final score. And I believe one other element he didn't do. But this is technically his cut. I think and it was the final the, sound mix. Yes. Yeah, I, I believe you're right. And, and the 145 minute or whatever uh, number was going around – like there was the – I believe the editor said it doesn't exist. <laughs> so it, it, it is it is a weird case. Like this isn't you know like a, necessarily a Margaret situation, um, you, you know, of a movie that's been chopped up and moved around. But it <laughs> feels chopped up. It, it feels like so many things are left unsaid and I think that adds a very interesting dynamic even when – it, it's totally head scratching, you know, whether it comes from like the music who's from De Palma regular Pino Donaggio, like just when it's done on the keyboard, especially <laughs> there's this keyboard piano theme that is so chintzy. And so like mm -hmm. I, I'm over I, I there's a possibility I'm overthinking some of this stuff, but just the dissonance between some of that stuff and then no, just the music, the music. Definitely. You're not overthinking that. No, I know. But I, I think that at a certain point, I admire that about it. And just there are like maybe <laughs> a dozen lines of dialogue in here, which are just like 
so powerful on their own, you know, especially the stuff with Guy Pierce, which we can get into, you know, like, and there's just so many lines that I think communicate like an odd, an odd sense of being of like the geopolitical background, just being totally lost and being totally scrambled and just like, it, it's kind of something I felt about black hat to an extent as well. But, um, I, I digress. Like I, I'd be hard pressed again, like Brian and like Adam to say, this is a great movie or even a very good movie, but it's something I've been thinking about a lot. And at least a couple scenes in here, I'm going to be thinking about all year. All right. Bill Graham. Yeah, I didn't very much enjoy this film. Um, I I think you can definitely tell that something happened uh, somewhere during the production of this film because it feels almost like it was it was finished um, by someone else. And I, you know, we have De Palma and we have those quotes to kind of back up that this is roughly his, his final version of it, but it just feels like, like someone spent $2 to, to like finish this off. And it just, there's, there's just corners that feel like they were cut in certain directions in certain areas that, uh, I, I'm just having trouble, like, understanding that the Palma is the director of this film at some times. <laughs> um, maybe this is, uh, you know, one of those classic cases where maybe directors should stop directing at some point um, as they get older, but I don't know. Um, there is something interesting here. There's something uh, entertaining going on, but then there's like this terrorism aspect that, just feels really, really like at some point it just feels like it's, it's more in love with like the technology than it is the actual like, uh, cinema of it. Um, and the way that it's kind of, uh, uh, shown. Um, also it's, it's odd that it's, uh, set in 2020. I don't know why. Um, yes, this movie does tend to take place in the about future. That. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I sat down and I had no idea what I was getting myself into and I watched it all in one sitting. So that says something, I think it, is it over two hours? No, it's an hour and a half. It's like 89 minutes. Oh yeah. 89 (laughs) minutes. Yeah. Ooh. Can Um, I, can I, can I I jump in on something there? Do it. Yeah. Um, I mean that maybe I won't harp on this point because you know, it's it, it's a fair opinion, and it's one that was echoed in a couple of other high-profile reviews of the film. I I couldn't disagree more about this idea that maybe he shouldn't direct. I don't think that that's correct, but that's fair enough. What I think is interesting, and maybe you guys can respond to, is something else I tried to get at in my review, which is, if anything, it's the slightly compromised quality of it, or the ornery quality of it, that it really couldn't be anyone else but De Palma. This is a guy who I think really has struggled by his own admission and in terms of the discourse around him, it's been talked about, like he aspires to Hollywood success and to some of the successes of his cohort, you know, Spielberg and Scorsese, who he refers to by first name because he grew up with them. You know, if Mm -hmm. you've seen De Palma, he's like 
Stephen, Marty, Francis, you know, he's on a first name basis with them, but he's not on the same last name basis that they are in film culture, maybe in a very rarefied sense of, uh, you know, high auteur film culture, but he's not a household name. I take the marginalization that has happened to him in the last 15 years with films like, you know, Black Dahlia, which was sort of like, you know, a bit of a weird mainstream failure redacted, which had issues with financing and editing. Now he's had to decamp to Europe for money. There's a badge of honor to me. It's a, it's a, it's a sign that for better or for worse, and sometimes it's for worse, he can't really suck up. He's not capable of making innocuous movies. And there's something somewhat unsafe and unpackaged and dangerous about him that he just can't help himself with. Mm -hmm. It's an involuntary thing for him. Mm. Because in the Bombac Paltrow doc, it's somewhat disappointing and kind of funny how he's really proud of the movies that made money. And he's <laughs> yeah. proud of it. He's like, that was great. The Untouchables was great. It made money. Scarface is great. It, it made money. Certain fans of his probably might say that those are among his lesser films or his worst films because they, they're somewhat better behaved. Maybe not Scarface, but The Untouchables in terms of its morality and in terms of its its narrative is pretty conventional. I look at a movie like Domino and I'm like Spielberg, Scorsese, even maybe Coppola to a lesser degree because he's a pretty free filmmaker these mm-hmm. days. Like they will never be humbled like this and have to fight <laughs> from fight from underneath like this and kind of like feels like wait Marty's for, getting there, but maybe or like wait for these European producers to pay them and their casts. <laughs> and in a way, yeah. I, I admire the hell out of that. And Would I you put Ferrara in that same category? Ferrara, uh, Verhoeven to some extent. Okay, Walter, sure. Walter Hill with a movie like oh, yeah. or, or Reassignment. You know, it's these kind of like um, these really iconoclastic guys who know what mainstream success looks like and have generated it. They also know that, you know, to some extent you have to compromise to do that. So I'm not saying that the things that are bad about Domino are arguably bad or bad on purpose or that we should celebrate the aspect of it that seems somewhat inept. But I love how messy and ornery and broken and kind of fucked up it is as a movie. It reflects its production circumstances. And without trying to be smug about it, like that's why it's more interesting than better realized films, because there's tension in it. There's a tension in it that's just so compelling. In my yeah. in in my head, watching watching this movie, I weirdly it's, it's funny you bring up Scorsese. I thought of Silence because um yeah sure Silence is a movie you watch it and it it is it like he had the money he had the cast he had the time he had Final Cut he he clearly made the movie he wanted and I that feel was 10 like ten years in the making too wasn't it yeah like it took him forever to get that movie made but it's just funny because it feels like. He should have had to go through all the domino bullshit in order to get silence made. But like, that's just how much cachet he had. Like, well, especially he, coming off of Wolf of Wall Street and yeah. everything like that. That's fair. Yeah. So, but it's just funny because it's like, these are two movies that equally from these people should not have, like, should have been shit show productions that like, you know, you had to suck up to some weird Duke who somehow still exists in Europe to try to get money. <laughs> But like Martin Scorsese had that one more like sort of like blank checky thing in him. And Maybe Brian even a Monty just... Monty Pierce. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and so yeah, it's it's funny because I was watching this movie and I was thinking like, 
I just feel like like they all came up together. Like you hear De Palma and like you think of Carrie and all these movies that he made that like Mission impossible right, are indelible and, and made money. <laughs> but at the same time, like it's almost like you, like in movies or TV shows or books where it's like there's the famous people and then like there's the guy who was coming up with them in the 70s, but is hit on hard times. And so they're like, hey, hey, Brian, what's up? And he's like, hey, Marty, Steven, what's up, guys? Oh, my God, how are you doing? Like, we're still having fun, right? And they're like, yeah, yeah, no. We were just going to – we were on our way to the Oscars. What were you What were you up to? And he's like, oh, I was going to see if you wanted to get some Domino's pizza. And they're just like – on the point you just said about the Oscars, I, I, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's perfect that you said that because the great critic Nick Pinkerton, who's a big De Palma fan, he wrote this one about De Palma. And it's one of those things a critic says that just stays in your head. It's not an observation about any one of the films Nick just wrote. Brian De Palma has never been nominated for an Oscar and he never will. And yeah. he was saying it as highest compliment possible. Sure. Right? Yeah, it's absolutely. Not, it's not to diminish the kinds of filmmakers that do get nominated for Oscars, but when you make Dress to Kill and when you make Blowout, you're not going to get Oscar nominations for that. But it's not a sign of lesser artistry at yeah. all. Arguably, even Carlito's Way, for instance. Sure. Snake Eyes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Here's the thing. I love grungy, weird De Palma. Like, I, I, I still talk about how much I love the movie Passion. I finally watched it this weekend, Brian. Did you? What did you think? I thought that its office politics were were fascinating, <laughs> and and also I didn't really like it as a movie, but I thought about it a lot. So that, it was very much a De Palma movie. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, there's there's a moment in that movie, and I want to say it's punctuated by like the shadows cast by some blinds. Yes, where you're just suddenly like. Oh, okay. This movie's fucking nuts. Like it's gone from kind of weird, and maybe I don't understand it. To no, this might have just been made by an insane person. And well, I love got- that. And even the Black Dahlia is this not yes. good, but weirdly engrossing, like odd noir thing. It's it's so good. And Snake Eyes, like. Snake Eyes is freaking amazing, and it's it's so dumb, but I love it so much. Well, uh, you know, you, you mentioned Passion. I mean, that's a movie that, again, if you look at the reviews of it, and the same thing is true of Domino, and maybe this is an interesting way to talk about it, because you said off the top, it's like on VOD with limited theatrical, right? Mm-hmm. And the, limit, the limited theatrical that I've been aware of is pretty boutique-y. It's not like playing at a small theater down the street. It's like showing at the Metrograph in New York, and that's because of who he is and because it's kind of a critical rallying point. But I love the idea that this is a movie that on the one hand is going to be picked over and analyzed, as I said, in that kind of forensic way for any scraps of auteurist display and intent because that's who Brian De Palma is. But on the other hand, it's just going to be advertised on VOD without any presence of his name. You know, yeah. it's just like an action movie that you might rent accidentally, because let's be honest, sure. about the majority of the movie going public. And that's not an insult either. It's just like, you know, this is not like an tourist focused mainstream. This movie is like a piece of VOD product, which is how right. it's going to be seen by a lot of people. It's not going to be released and seen the way a movie like Carrier, The Untouchables or, or Mission Impossible was. So I love the idea that to some extent there are zero actual stakes with this movie, 
But for people who talk about diploma, this is the only important thing that's going to come out this year. And passion was kind of the same way. If you show passion to a normal person, like a normal human <laughs> being watching passion is like, what on God's green earth is this? If a diploma fan is watching it, they're like, oh, that is the split screen from this. Sure. And this is a reference to Raising Cain. And the Coke machine being driven into is a Kubrick reference and it's anti-corporate and it's hilarious. It's like there's two realities with these movies. And we are occupying, I think, the more insular, elitist one by talking about this movie at all. Because Domino is not a movie that is going to be talked about at all. Oh, and <laughs> there, there's, um, there's moments where I, as we sit down to talk about something like Anyara or... I don't know, half the stuff that we talk about on this podcast where I think to myself, what what is X very popular movie podcast going to be talking about this week? <laughs> and I can almost guarantee it's not going to be what we're talking about. But this is also the type of podcast where we spent like two hours talking about silence and X popular movie podcasts spent maybe like 30 minutes on it. Like... That's who we are. And that's that's one of the reasons why I think Brian De Palma appeals to us even in his failures because there's just no one else like him. And if you understand what he's doing and what he's going for and what he's all about, even something like this, where there were times when I was think looking at it thinking, is this really this is really what they decided to do? Like they're sure. really going for this right now. Like we have a slow motion scene that is 25% composed of a shot of this and ends like this. Like that's, there's just something unknowable about it. There's something that reaches up and grabs you and says like, this is, this is singular. This is not an Anton Megaton or whatever his name is. Olivier Megaton. Olivier Megaton. Yeah. Like, but it's funny because, you know, you mentioned the the VOD, it's not even gonna mention his name. If you look at if you look at the uh the what's it call it, the poster for this, it's like Nicolaj Kosterwaldo, Carice Van Houten, and Guy Pierce from the director of Mission Impossible, Domino. And it says directed by De Paul, Brian De Palma. But it's it's like the it's like <laughs> It's just an insane poster, and anyone should go and look at it. Because well, well, it's not quite the poster for Dress to Kill, which is like, or or start raising K, which is like deranged, demented, de Palma. <laughs> yeah. Right? You know, no, this is this sure. is like it's Nicolas Costawaldo, which is if it's if I don't know if it's going to show this way for everyone, but if you go to the IMDb page on your computer, they've got the poster right next to like the the op, like the screen cap for the trailer, and it's him in the exact same position. So you can see that they were like, let's try to get a shot of Nikolaj where he looks like he's holding a gun getting ready to shoot someone. And so that's what it is on the poster with like the background images of like people falling over and Guy Pierce looking like Guy Pierce. But then you look in the trailer and you're like, oh, right. That scene where he's posing with the gun is for the scene where he has taken his friend's gun because he forgot his own and is looking confusedly because his friend may or may not be dead. And well, that just uh, that lets you know everything you need to know about the struggle of making and trying to show a De Palma film because you're not going to get the stuff that you're expecting. And so you've got these poor ad people who are like, how do I mash this thing to look like what I think people are going to want to look like? 
Well, we can use what you were just talking about to actually start talking about the movie, right? <laughs> because the entire, well, no, I mean, it's interesting. The entire plot of the movie happens only because this character, whose name I should indicate is Christian, which does start to inflect some of the geopolitics and the religiosity of it with, with some meaning, I think, some satirical meaning. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, it's because he forgets his gun, and we know he forgets his gun because De Palma gives us this incredibly long zoom on the gun he's left behind after just having sex with this woman in his apartment, which is very De Palma and, and very phallic. And, like, for the whole movie, he's forgetting his gun. He's not using his gun. His gun is misfiring. Like, we all get the joke. Has to, like, give up his gun. Has to give up his gun. <laughs> but it also yes. ties to something you were saying earlier about failure, which I also tried to get at in my review. And maybe you guys can jump off from this and riff on it. Is like, there is no filmmaker who is more obsessed with and committed to the idea of main characters failing than Brian De Palma. This is his entire career. No one succeeds in his movies. His heroes are constantly failing. They're failing their own principles, their standards. They they don't save people. Or if they do save people, it's only to try and even the stakes because they've lost someone else earlier on. And really, like, the funniest thing about Domino is how little this character that he plays accomplishes. I mean, I don't want to spoil the entire plot of the movie, <laughs> no. but if you do the math, he does yeah. nothing. He does nothing. And so selling him as an action hero on the poster is so antithetical to the way the movie works or it's perfectly in sync with it because the movie sets up this impressive crusading roof jumping cop and he's completely useless. I mean, you don't, you don't give a main actor a leather jacket like that and not expect some people to think he's an action star. (laughs) Sure. I I think the other interesting thing too, is that, you know, like I uh, Adam, I completely agree with you about the how how much uh, failure comes into this, and obviously that's a recurring theme. But also in terms of how that relates to how terrorism is shown in this, you know, for the first time, I, I think that his view of terrorism, as pessimistic as it is, and as you know, uh, pan- you know, as a panopticon, like. It, it's kind of culturally in step. Like it's not like totally. he. It, it, and I, I'm not saying that he is culturally out of step at other times in his career, but there's a lot that feels extremely relevant in this movie. You know, beyond how much you know tech figures into the actual practice of terrorism. Yeah, I would agree, and I would say the other thing that is both out of step and in step, and again, I'd love to hear what you guys think of this, is it's simultaneously so out of the moment in terms of how blatant its kind of xenophobia and arguably its racism is, right? It's mitigated somewhat by the fact that it's not inventing a terrorist organization. It calls them ISIS. And you're not going to have too many people, even in the liberal film critic world, sticking up and being like, oh, man, you should be nicer to ISIS, right? You know, (laughs) she's chosen ISIS. But He's presenting Middle Eastern terrorists without any real dramaturgical or characterological nuance. That's unusual now because it's it's an era where people like to kind of hedge their bets. It's not the 80s. It's not the 90s. And yet that also feels very in the moment in terms of the idea of trolling, right? Or in terms of the idea of 
of political correctness as an end in and of itself. He's always been a provocateur. Mm. And when I look at the way the terrorists in this film are depicted, the spectacular nature of what they're trying to do, the weird way that they are the diploma surrogate in the film because they are the film directors trying to create images that are spectacular to shock people and provoke people. It's pretty fascinating and complex in its way. Even if you were to watch any five minutes in the movie, you'd be like, is this a cable thriller from 1985? Like, how do you make something this racist in 2019? Uh, it is and it isn't. I don't know what you guys thought of that. Well, that's a well, it's a funny well, point. I think of- that's, we should get into spoilers for that, I think. But let's briefly kind of outline what happens so we can talk about that with some yeah. more well, just, I wanted to say it, it's a funny point about the terrorists because, like, I watched the new Jack Ryan Amazon oh yikes (laughs) well no and like that's the thing is like you would think that if anyone's gonna be less than pc it would be it would be a tom clancy thing but actually tom clancy you know if you if you read his books his earlier books maybe i don't know about like the last two or three he was usually pretty in in the brain of these people and would like give their reasons but then you know kind of just dismiss them because you know they're the bad guys um but the the tom clancy like jack ryan tv show went like way out of its way to be like look there's a reason this guy from the middle east is so mean and we're gonna show you some flashbacks and we're really gonna talk about it and this movie again yeah like you said is just like well you know it's isis meh like we're going to show you them beheading a guy. We're going to show a couple of horrifying terrorist incidents. And it is like one of the things that makes this movie like possibly offensive, but also infinitely more interesting is the way that it is. And it's just so obvious with a name like Domino, but that like this one freak accident crime leads to all this other stuff. Yeah. And the things that we see and that we learn about these people and the way that it's all compiled, it's so, it's so bizarre. It's so twisty. It's like a very complicated plot without being a complicated narrative. Mm -hmm. There's a scene where it's a montage of people traveling from one city to the other. And then it just cuts to Guy Pierce and, um, Erica Bouyanye, and they're just sitting at a bar drinking a beer quietly. Yes. <laughs> yes. And like, I just, you know, what do you what do you do with a movie like this? It's very strange. But basically, the plot is that <laughs> Nicholas Kosterwald is Christian, and his uh his partner Lars Hansen go to respond to a domestic disturbance. They get there, they they find a guy with blood on his shoes, they they tackle him cuff him they got to still go up to the apartment to check it out turns out this guy is not the guy who lived at the apartment it's a man whose father was killed by isis and has now committed himself to trying to take down this this one particular uh sheik or imam or i can't remember what they call him i think it's sheik yeah they call him sheik throughout yeah um anyway his name he's also i think his like given name in the movie is Aldine. So I'm just going to stick with that. Um, so he's trying to kill Aldine and guy Pierce captures him and is like, Hey, look, you're doing pretty good at this. So I'm going to take your family hostage and you can have them back when you kill him. 
this Aldine cat. And uh, so go like, we'll, we'll furnish you with some stuff, but you've got to go and do that. And meanwhile, Christian's like, I got to find the guy who killed my partner. And so he ends up getting like unwittingly sort of mixed up in this, but it's the funniest part is that it's not like he has to fight through the CIA to get to these people. He is like, no one gives a shit about him. No one cares. He's he's this utterly ineffectual character who the movie forces us to spend time with in between the stuff that's more entertaining. Yeah. Right. Uh, And, um, in a, in a way that reminded me of Twin Peaks, where like mm. all we want to do is learn how Laura Palmer died and what happened to Laura Palmer, and then every once in a while, it'll cut to like Shelley and Bobby, you know, crying because they can never be together as the music <laughs> swells, and like this movie has moments like that where characters are hear a piece of information, are super overcome with emotion, and the score swells in a very weird melodramatic way that is either nonsense or completely brilliant and i don't know that i'll ever know which one it is you have these moments where and again it's i'm very wary of the idea of trying to recapitulate faults as strengths because we like certain directors but there are all these moments where i'm sitting watching and i'm like are you fucking with us like when 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 they have this intense discussion on a bench and the camera just takes in this windmill in the background (laughs) which is just the most picture postcard you know they're traveling through you know this kind of like you know tolerant you know very sort of you know um, danish part of europe i think they're on route to brussels at that point or they're on route to spain and i'm just like are you kidding you know (laughs) is this lazy or is this really really pointed in terms of you know this kind of touristic you know european cliche and you know similarly the 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 scenes with the terrorists where they're sitting around planning their 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 attacks or or executing their attacks and it's you know they're they're talking about them as if they're like you use the word panopticon before but you know they're talking about them like they're talking about film scenes you know like they're like they're staging scenes in movies and again you're like this movie's being very purposeful here he's he's fucking with us he's kidding with us he's playing (laughs) with us even the scene where they're looking through those pictures on the phone, a plot point that I don't know if we want to spoil, but remember that scene where we're looking through someone's pictures on their phone? Yeah. We're full in spoilers. I think, Adam, yeah, we're full in spoilers now. right now. Well, the, the, scene, the scene where you find out that his partner was having an affair with um, with Lars. This younger cop played by yeah. Therese Van Houten, which, of course, adds to the idea that everyone in this film is compromised and nobody's very nice. And you're looking at these photos and you just find yourself asking, like, who took these photos? These photos <laughs> are so silly. The way that they're posed is so silly. They're like a parody. They're like a joke of the idea of, like, couple vacation, couples vacation photos. Yeah. And so you're, you, you're trapped in this insane space between, like, are these just lazy tropes and the path of least resistance because this movie was falling apart and everyone who made it hated it? Or is this part of the generally parodic uh, style that De Palma has cultivated? And so you're torn between like what your eyes and your instincts and your impulses are telling you and what your familiarity with a filmmaker kind of suggests, which is purpose at all times. Yeah, I, I, I wonder that exact thing. Like in, in the same way, for instance, you know, one detail I really love in the final set piece is how long it takes for the drone to actually yeah. get. You were talking about uh, it being a film scene. How long the drone takes to get in place so it can, you know, take the best possible shot of him as he's about to blow him, 
you know, as he's about to commit suicide, I like, I was very much stuck in the, in that same space in wondering, you know, in the same way that he, that is so carefully composed and so uh, fastidious, like when they're, you know, looking through that phone, that is composed with the same level of care. It, It is, it is very much like programmed to triggers but it's programmed to triggers in a way that, you know, as you're saying, it, it again just feels like it's all, uh, it's all, you know, you know, flipping a middle finger at, at at your expectations for this and how crazy it is that we're supposed to care about this relationship when you know the CIA is also extorting this man, like it's. So, uh, but what I actually want to say is, what do you guys make then of the final coda after, you know, you get this perfect uh, um, still uh, of the, of Alex and Christian together after they kill (laughs) uh, uh, the Sheik? What do you guys make of that final bit with the, 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 the explosive coda? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I linked it immediately to the Fury, right? Which which ends with this character. Have you guys all seen the Fury? I have, I not. have not, but I know no. the scene you're referring to. So the the Fury has this ending that is kind of like the perfect companion to the ending of Carrie, you know. But but it also kind of reverses the ending of Carrie uh, in that you know it's not like a dream of someone you know coming back from the dead but it's this telekinetic teenager using her powers to finally defeat the villain and it's like a zabriski point homage where the the villain played by john cassavetes is just exploded you know he's blown up and all the bad energy that he represents kind of just explodes and it's so satisfying and it's like an orgasm and it's like a an antonioni nod and all those things and here you also end with this image of someone immolating and, and blowing up, you know, um, except it's a suicide bomber. And it's something we've seen earlier in the movie. It didn't really need to be re-shown at that point. I mean, we haven't even talked about the film festival. No, we people. haven't. We <laughs> haven't talked about there. a bunch of stuff. There's a lot in this movie. <laughs> but, I, but, I, but I wrote that if I could ask him one question, I've interviewed Brian De Palma before, too. He's actually an okay interview. People say that he's a, a jerk, but I found him very personable. But I would ask him, like, does the part where you see this radical – terrorist blow herself up and then it immediately has like directed by brian de palma in the freeze frame and i'm like did you put that there you know was that someone just trying to get the movie off their hard drive or are you cinching this link between yourself as this almost kind of terroristic creator of images uh, or the implosion of your movie with this 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 terrorist blowing herself up the coda is insane it's but insane. It stokes all it's, of the xenophobic claims as well. One hundred percent. Because at the end, it's like okay, but like remember that even though they stopped this thing in this in this mostly empty bullfighting ring, like yeah. the you know we've still got like everything that happened before. It's and it's things like that that make me go like I kind of wish this movie had the silence aura to it like i wish they'd just given him all the money he wanted i wish that but he was many, able to but, but, but how many of his movies end with a broken woman reaching out and screaming sure. 
it's the last shot of passion. passion. It's the last <laughs> shot of passion. It's the last shot of the Black Dahlia where he visualizes the corpse on the lawn. Yeah. It's the end of Carrie. It's the end of Blowout. It's the end of Dress to Kill. Like, I'm not trying to be pedantic. I'm just like, no, that's sure. his ending. It's it's his ending. And it, the twist on it here is that it's a woman blowing herself up. But it's in line, you know? It's even in line with the woman in Casualties of War reaching out to the camera as she kind of falls to her death. Like, it's a motif that he's kind of obsessed with. And that idea of, like, reopening the danger after this very unconvincing... I mean, like, have you ever seen, like, a less convincing climax than the end of Domino? Like, it's <laughs> so phony. Doesn't feel like it really means it. <laughs> no, he doesn't feel like he means it at all. I wonder if he means the coda. And if he does... It's pretty pessimistic stuff. I mean, the, like they they win at the end of this movie, and it involves a slow motion kick to the balls. <laughs> I I loved it. It's I like I was wondering like, oh, what's she gonna do? She's about to kick. Is she gonna kick the thing out of his hands? And then like, she's not raising her leg high enough to hit the tray of the po the the poison the uh, the explosive drinks. <laughs> And it's just like, nope, there it is, into his nuts. Yeah. Which, and which they established earlier. Right. She is, she is, she, she, she kicked is the guy like 20 times in the balls earlier. Yeah. Yes. Well, but it's not it, kicker it's, Van Hooten. Well, who can forget? I don't know if any of you guys have read um, An American Psycho, which is Chris Dumas' book. But uh, on De Palma, which is a brilliant book if you haven't read it. But he cites the line in Raising Cain. It's the funniest thing he's ever heard in a movie when you talk about preparing and setting up gimmicks. When in Raising Cain, there's the giant sundial at the hotel. And you hear someone say, someone's going to get killed by that sundial. Or you're going to kill someone with that sundial. And at the end of the movie, this giant sundial kills somebody. You know, <laughs> that, that incredibly distended, almost parodic, like, this is taking forever is the same thing you have at the end of Raising Cain with the thing falling before it crushes somebody. So that what you were talking about with the drone and the slow progress and is she going to knee him in the balls and is the drone going to fly into him? It, well, that's it, the it, other it, thing. Was anyone expecting the drone to do that? No, that's hilarious. that was not. It was hilarious, it was hilarious I but it. <laughs> also I was just like, what the shit? <laughs> It's like of all the things that I was expecting to happen there, the concept of the drone is going to go and like nearly decapitate this guy was not one of them because like, I don't know if you guys know this, but drones can't do that. Like they're just not that powerful. Why are you ruining the movie? But yeah, then, was, that's the thing I was, is, I think I was second guessing it the whole time. I was like, this is not real. I think that, uh, but I think that my issue is guys. sort of, I think my issue is sort of like at that point I was still operating in some level of reality, which is insane because the movie had done so much to disabuse me of the fact that this took place in any reality. Just going back to like when he's hanging off the gutter, mm -hmm, yeah. they are alternately 12 inches and 12 feet apart within like this, like a cut. It's, <laughs> it's insanity. Yeah. But I mean, you're right, but there's something so physical and tactile and concrete about that scene. And again, I'm not trying to do the easy thing where it's like, Oh, superhero movies are bad and CGI sucks. Superhero movies are bad and CGI does suck, but that's not my point. It's just that, Watching that staging and that choreography and something committed to just like two guys scrambling around on an actual roof, it feels like cinema to me. Oh, it's yeah. Not I mean, just, 
it's it's not just that it's a vertigo reference and it's not just that it's a blowout reference blowout via vertigo it's just like that's kind of awesome to see in 2019 or set in 2020 just like an actual rooftop chase yeah and 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 despite my issues with its uh, and this is something that i say sometimes and i'm not sure if i'm covering for a movie or actually on its level but it's very dreamlike it is where totally. you're just like okay that doesn't quite look convincing but it's definitely like there ish and also like are they right next to each other or are they very far apart and there's, i don't know like there's the greatness of lars taking forever to die in that scene too oh yeah just in constantly Howie. at the window like yeah no man you got him he's over there i'm still holding my neck oh shit oh damn it <laughs> oh it takes him takes him takes him forever to die and just like the way that the movie salts the wound by having Lars, who we realize later has been cheating on his wife. His wife is like, I'm remembering correctly, she's like quite ill and on crutches. Yeah. So like the adultery is just like so cruel in contrast to Christian's sense of this man as someone noble to look up to and this good husband. Yeah, and he's like, times- oh, I've got this dowdy, crippled wife. Why don't I like make out with the red priestess? Yeah, exactly. But go on, like, opulent European... Well, I mean, they're in Europe, so it's not as impressive, (laughs) but opulent European vacations with her. Yeah, documented via those selfies we were talking about earlier, which are just hilarious. Does anyone... We've all at least been in relationships. Have you ever taken a selfie, like, naked in bed with your partner? Well, not one that looks like it was taken by a third party, which they all do. Which is just hilarious. Yeah, that's definitely with the uh, front-facing camera, not the or uh, the the back of the camera, not yeah. the front-facing. Yeah, they took like I, a I burst the, and then yeah. deleted the yeah. ones that didn't I, look. That I can good. tell the the megabits are too too high on that. Megapixels. <laughs> yeah, megapixels. There you go. But it, but it really does contribute to the feeling. And again, it's a bit of a cliche to talk about like a good movie is one without likable characters. That's often not true. But like. Everyone in this movie, getting back to the idea of the domino and the domino effect, like everyone's quite compromised. And you really are stuck with Christian as a hero as opposed to him really like fitting the bill, you know? Right, because he's just boring enough that he hasn't done anything that bad. Right. And so then you have this second hero, the Eric Abune character. Sorry, is the character, is it, what's the character's name? Ezra Tarzi. Ezra, who's also a kind of compelling hero Mm because he's just like Mm -hmm. badass killing machine for his family but he's ultimately not all that successful and not exactly like lovable and then the guy pierce character is very funny and charming and charismatic but he represents the worst of american interventionism and as such is named joe martin (laughs) joe martin you're certainly not rooting for isis so it's kind of a discombobulating experience. Even though the movie frames like them as ultimately like victorious. Yeah. They, they and, yeah. It's so weird. Um, I do like how right before they are ultimately victorious. And I say that with air quotes, uh, there's that uh, there's a, uh, the great point where guy Pierce is on the phone and he's like, Oh, we doing a normal horse trade as, as in that, you know, this isn't his first rodeo at all with trading uh, Alamine for for Ezra or or that type of um, sorry uh, that type of trade. Like I, yeah. I thought that the way that 
the language of that dialogue and just how annoyed he is then that Alex and Christian are getting in the way was like, uh, yeah really damn. really potent. <laughs> well, the, yeah. Okay, I need I need the space to talk about the best moment in this movie, which is when so like Alex shoots Ezra. And it's just like that kind of ending where it's like, well, damn it, everyone's dead and no one's happy. And and they say, Guy what Pierce, do we do now? As Joey Marty. Oh, okay. Joey Marty throws up his hands and says, like, well, I hope you, you know, killing your lover's murderer makes you feel better. <laughs> and Christian says, How did you know about that? And Joey Marty, as an outline, says, We're the Americans. We read your emails. And then just disappears. <laughs> That's great. Yep. It's so that it was like I heard that and I was like, "Oh shit, I love this movie." It's a it's a it's a great line and it's a reminder of what his roots have always been in from the beginning, which is I mean, really a kind of like left liberal political satirist, you know? Yeah. If you look at stuff like Greetings and Hi Mom, which are draft dodgers and and, and Vietnam War protesters and certainly anti-authority figures. And that's what I mean, too, by the idea that even in his 70s, where he is now, like, he's still that same, like, punk, you know? Yeah. And and that line is a perfect expression of that. It's so well delivered by Pierce, too. Pierce is great in these kinds of roles. He yeah. excels at playing the guy who's, like, so in the movie that he's almost through it and outside of it again he played a similar role in lawless yeah mm-hmm. Ugh, like uh, it's like i like i the saw this slick, movie the slickness comes so naturally to him yeah for a guy who is equally good at playing like the world's dirtiest man <laughs> you know either in like the proposition or the rover he's really good at playing like a slick greaseball yeah. Oh man. Like there's a weird thing about this movie where I watched it and afterwards I was like, there's like 20 other movies that I need to watch now because this movie made me think of them. <laughs> One of them was uh dragged across across concrete, weirdly enough. Yeah, it's a good comparison actually. Not only because it both involve wives that you have to use crutches. <laughs> yeah. I would was... say the trolling in here though. Like Adam, you were speaking about uh you know, trolling that isn't being you know it's not trying to poke you in the eyes about it why i I would say zoller is someone who kind of does do that i compared them in my review and you know maybe this isn't the time to litigate the case for or against that's craig (laughs) zoller but what's interesting about zoller i think is that he has this same kind of uh determination to to do what he's gonna do and he obviously doesn't really sweat what people are going to criticize him for. And on some level that's admirable. I just think De Palma is an older, I don't just think it's factually true, but like he's an older guy, you know, I think he's kind of seen more. I think that his cynicism, it's not that it's like necessarily more earned, but there's something a bit more magisterial about his cynicism. It's like, Mm. this isn't just about pissing people off. It's, it's about reflecting and, and meditating over a lot of time he has spent pissing people off and how things that mm-hmm. pissed people off over the decades have changed and shifted polarities. The thing that I think about about this movie the most, I mean, I only saw it a month ago, but I've thought about it at least once a day, is the choice when we talk about trolling, and we should all jump in and talk about the scene, 
the massacre at the film festival and you look at all the different levels of obnoxiousness and hatefulness and kind of terror that that encapsulates. I mean, this is Brian De Palma showing a film festival being shot up. I mean, on some very basic level, there's like something hugely resentful and cathartic about that because of his relationship to film culture being somewhat adversarial. But at the same time, this is the world that he occupies and he shows it under threat. You know, it's, it's an artistic space. It's a creative space. It's, it's, it's the world of cinema that he shows being destroyed and then to show it being destroyed by someone who's essentially a filmmaker, you know, a terrorist who's conflating the technology of terrorism with filmmaking to live stream it, like to say nothing of how present tense that is in terms of the Christchurch shootings, which is like horrific resonance between those things. I just think of that film festival set piece and I'm like, it's so fake looking. The gore is so phony. It's so gimmicky. Mm -hmm. It's so offensive. It's so opportunistic, but it's like fucking unforgettable. How many things do we see in movies now that are unforgettable? Not even you know, it, concrete is actually that unforgettable. You know, it weirdly enough, I, I, as you're talking about it, I, re, I realize that it reminds me quite a bit of the opening set piece of Mission Impossible 2, which might be an odd uh, comparison. And, and that's where uh, they essentially fly a plane of, a uh, full of people into, into a mountain. And uh, I'm just thinking about the set piece and they're both very heightened and they're both, you know, ghastly and just kind of comic and, and have also this uh, this strange stylization to them. Um, but I also I, I can't help but think about how strange it is that we we watch this entire sequence and then even after she uh, – she is uh, shot down, right? Yeah, after she's shot down. Um, but she's not shot down. She blows herself her. up. She blows herself up. She blows herself up. What, what am I thinking about the machine gun? Oh, she has a machine gun. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's been a while since I've seen it as well. Um, sorry. After yeah, she we blows are herself recording up. this like five days later than we expected to. <laughs> uh, uh, anyways, uh, after she blows herself up, it it then stays in that room. We don't cut back to, you know, Christian or anything, but like, I feel like that's what almost stuck with me more is that we stay in that room and after this horrible event and they're just talking about it, like mission accomplished. And it's something that you don't see, see, especially in like action movies. Like it's, it's something I guess maybe I'm taking for granted and maybe I'm making too much of this, but, um, well, no, he's, he, it's definitely a moment where he's like, you know, check the gate on that one. That's a good clip. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's the tech language, but it's also just them reflecting on just doing something uh, horrible. I, I, I'm sorry. Maybe I'm well, no, uh, like, finding a dead end here. No, but when you were just saying check the gate, like that's what's so startling about it is it it's it is a sense of mission accomplished not just in the sense of the violence done but that it's been captured and then it's going to kind of be perceived mm-hmm. you know i don't know what i don't know what you guys think of of redacted but you know to me that's a really serious film and one of the better late de palma movies i hated how people dismissed it and, and were kind of condescending to it when it came out because it reminded me of his earlier political comedies and and that it's you know, quite an incendiary movie, but 
you know, like in that movie, he's obviously thinking through what it means to live in this culture of kind of open sourced images and how you go online and you can kind of find anything. You know, it's it's not just professionals making images now. It's it's the idea that that images can come from anywhere. And that's a millennial change that, you know, for a filmmaker who came up in the 70s is, is something interesting to think about. Maybe you're scared of it or maybe it excites you. And that extends into this movie, which is just filled with people watching screens and filled with all kinds of ideas of of amateur filmmaking and the weaponization of, of filmmaking towards political ends. I mean, you, you include all the beheading videos, you have the film festival set piece, the drone at the end is the idea of trying to do something even more spectacular. It, it gives it this texture that, again, it, for people who are just maybe watching it without caring that it's a De Palma movie, they're going to think like, oh, this is like vaguely techie. But if, you, if you're looking at it as the reason that he made it, the thrill, if the thriller stuff is sort of a pretense towards what he's actually trying to say, um, the, the commentary is pretty perceptive and sobering, I think. I mean, I would agree with that. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's one of those things where sometimes you have to wonder to yourself, like, if I didn't know who was making this, would I imbue it with so much meaning? But at the same time, I think that to imbue anything with meaning you have to know who's who's making it like where it's coming from and so that question almost becomes weirdly self-defeating or self it it fulfills its own necessity in the asking because you're like but i do know and and i know that this person thinks these kinds of things and so it's really it's not like oh well i'm only thinking about this much because i know this person it's maybe the reason i haven't thought about it this much for other things is because I haven't looked deep enough into who's creating stuff. I remember there was some late Cronenberg movie that came out. It may have been Maps to the Stars. I remember someone at a screening at TIFF being like, if David Cronenberg's name wasn't on this movie, would anyone like it? And it's like, if David Cronenberg's name wasn't on this movie, it wouldn't be this movie. It wouldn't be made this way. Yeah, exactly. It it wouldn't exist. I mean, so you'd be talking about a a completely different, uh, a completely different, different film. So no, I'd agree with your point for sure. I, th- I think too, like, I mean, I think there is something to be said about the uh, a tourist thing of, you know, it, it, even if you're, you know, a film fan and Domino is your first De Palma, like there, I, as we've spent a lot of time talking about, I mean, there are so many nods to his past history, yeah. but, but even that, that, uh, the way that technology is portrayed in this, it, it's not naive. It's not, uh, you, you know, it's not, um, it's very thoughtful. It's, you know, for whatever jokes we can make about the, you know, front cover being a, uh, you know, a straight to VOD uh, lost John Cusack action thriller. Like, you know, there, there is content in here that it exists outside of auteurism fascination. That's, that's what I guess I'm, i I'm more trying to say is that uh, – and I think it's unfair obviously to assign value only to what we know about the director. Even though I, I – I must say just to go back to it one last time, I, I still hesitate to necessarily uh, agree with the idea that that final coda uh, – works considering it's the second time around like i i think that 
the transgressive nature would still be there without needing to return to it. Like it's something that is, has been a a big hesitation or has admittedly been a, yeah, big hesitation point. The more that I think about this film and try to, you know, even try to make coherence in the messiness. I mean, I think, should we should we apply any any thought to the writer in that way? I mean, because someone had sure. to think this whole thing up. No, of, of course, <laughs> you I, know, and it. I mean, it's that Contiki writer, which is a fascinating tidbit. Yeah, well, I like Contiki. I, I did too. <laughs> what it makes me think of is I don't know how familiar, and I'm not going to rag on him because I think he wrote a great script. But you know, how much do you guys know about David Burke, who wrote L? Are you guys fans of L? I'm a huge fan of L. Right. So David Burke wrote the script for L, and if you look at his other credits, they are not impressive. Right? They're like mm-hmm. really bad. They're they're direct to video kind of serial killer thrillers. And I've interviewed Verhoeven about David Burke. He said he's a great writer and that he wrote a good script and he did. But but there's a reason that people don't talk about L as a David Burke script. They talk about it as a Verhoeven movie because of that ability to like impose and inflect your personality on fairly generic material. Mm -hmm. L is generic in a different way than Domino is. But I mean, like fundamentally, it's a it's a pretty tropey script, right? Or it could be. And it's all just the emphasis of the direction and the actors and the self-citation. Like, no one else would include the scene in L where you see her stepping on the bugs with her foot from Starship sure. Troopers. That's because Paul Verhoeven directed it. No one else puts that in there. <laughs> so that's why when you watch Domino and you ask, well, what about the writer? It's like, it's a fair question. Someone had to write it. But that script has just been so clearly overwhelmed in the execution by, by De Palma and his own and I, you know, in interests. I wonder in that way, you know, we bring up, we bring up certain things like, um, oh, what was I going to say? The, uh, the sort of xenophobia that, that's uh, slightly apparent in it in some places. And, um, the, uh, basically what I was going to say is that I, I'm curious if, De Palma looked at what was a problematic script and said, let me make this problematic in my way. Or if he took a, a decently like rounded script and it was like, if we just clip here and here, I can make this as nuts as I want it to be. Like, was this initially more of a globe trotting, twisty, paranoid thriller where like maybe Ezra's character had more to do and, and, there was stuff happening on the edges, but nothing was really foregrounded in the way it was. Or was it initially like even more of like a weird right wing European screed against like refugees? And like, I want, I, I find it interesting to think about like which parts, like did De Palma make it pricklier or did he remove the, 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 the spines, the, the pins in it that he didn't want people to be pricked with and just like leave the ones that he did. If you believe the history, Body Double is largely a movie that exists because of what people said about Dress to Kill, right? Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. sort of like, oh, you think I'm this? Well, here you go. So he's not above that. (laughs) So this movie is entirely a response to people's thoughts on passion. 
<laughs> well, or, or at least, or at the very least, again, we're circling around this again, very 21st century con- conceit of trolling, right? Mm. Uh, you know, and, and and maybe it's the wrong word to use, but I think it's the right word to use because it it implies to some extent an intent of like mean spiritedness, or to or if not bad faith, kind of like fucking with people, for lack of a better word. Right. And I think there's maybe a half dozen major directors, even genre filmmakers, who you wouldn't impute that to. Like, that's not something John Carpenter does. You know, he's playful. But like John Carpenter's M.O. is not to be like, I kind of dislike you, viewer. <laughs> that's true. You know, well, it's, it's not his it's not his M.O. De Palma, that's always true. been him. Always. It's I always say like the difference between a provocateur and a troll is whether or not you like on some level agree with them. Sure. Yeah, because like you know, you've got this concept of like, oh, like this person, you know, the person who made Piss Christ is a provocateur, <laughs> you know. But if you do something similar to some iconography of some other group that you you think is like protected in some way, you're like, well, that person's just a troll. Like they're just a piece of shit. It's like, well, are they? Or are they like it? It really is the intent of the artist or the person doing it that defines whether or not they're trolling or trying to be a provocateur. But whether or not you're willing to apply that label to them also says something about you, which is a a statement that I now realize could be applied to the ISIS terrorists in this who film all these atrocities and then post them online. So uh, good work, Domino. Super happy (laughs) that this is where my brain is going. Um, Since we've mentioned Piss Christ for the second time this year, do you think we should perhaps think about uh, Piss Christ getting to last thoughts? I don't know, because, like, Piss Christ comes up a lot. I'm planning on trying to work that into every episode from now on. Uh, Toy Story 4 is going to be tricky, but uh, (laughs) I think I can do it. I did want to, I just just on, because I saw it and I want to have a moment to speak really well about it, I finally watched all of Chernobyl, which Mm -hmm. is uh, freaking amazing, and um, just because we were talking about, like, people whose writing, you know, of certain things doesn't seem reflected in their previous work. Are you all aware of what Craig Mazin wrote before writing Chernobyl? A bunch of movies that made a ton of money. They're really bad. Like, like he was Rocket Man, Senseless, Scary Movie 3 and 4, Superhero Movie, The Hangover Part 2, Identity Thief, The Hangover Part 3, The Huntsman Winner's War. He's not even, like starting the the franchises that he eventually hitches his like wagon to and starts making money off of he's constantly coming in on the sequels and then at some point he's just like i'm gonna write this sweeping miniseries about the uh disaster at chernobyl so never uh never look at someone's past work and then think maybe they didn't have anything to do with this because you never know you never know what their brains are doing while they're trying to hustle and make money in hollywood well, that was actually connected to what we were talking about, so I'm impressed. <laughs> right? No, I, I, I legitimately thought as he, as, as Adam was saying that I'm like, well, you know, but one night after like having the shit scared out of me by Chernobyl, I was like, what has Craig Mazin done before? I need to look up some of his stuff, and then I was like, oh shit, I've seen some of this. Not a fan. But yeah, any, uh, are there any final thoughts on Domino? I don't even know if we've like scratched the surface of this freaking movie. There's just it must be seen and reckoned with with your own heart to truly have any sense of it. 
Well, I might, if I can offer a final thought, first of all, Absolutely. thank you guys. Thank you guys for having me. It's really fun. I, I feel like the movies this year that have warranted this kind of discussion, people can talk as much as they want about anything. And I'm always very interested to listen and, you know, people do podcasts about Marvel movies and people do podcasts about all kinds of things. But I think about like Domino and Dragged Across Concrete and to some extent Under the Silver Lake. And I'm not a big fan of Under the Silver Lake and I'm not a fan of Dragged Across Concrete, though I rate Zoller as talented. To some extent, I think what has made those movies very talkaboutable, very discussable and very debatable is that it can be hard to reconcile intention and execution and it can be hard mm -hmm. to like reconcile like signaled meaning from like genre tropes that they're playing with and even the suspicion that they kind of fail or that they don't fully succeed i think in a moment where there's this weird quality control filter over a lot of what comes out of studios that results in stuff that's just very bland and very on message um, even in art cinema an art cinema that has become like controlled within an inch of its life in terms of what it means like I find these movies are kind of just wonderful to talk about maybe more than they are actually great fully realized works of art like Domino would be the movie so far from this year as I said that I would be most interested to hear what people think of and that's what this discussion has been but same with Dragged Across Concrete and Under the Silver Lake and a couple of others these movies that are like kind of broken or kind of messy or kind of flawed or kind of bad, but at least you can talk about them. Mm -hmm. Is Alita um, Battle Angel in that category for you, Adam? Woo! I found that movie really kind of interesting. It's just the budget level that it was made at and the polish that the script had, I thought kind of kept it from being like a really broken, contentious kind of blockbuster. But sure, I'd rather talk about it's that close. than about the Avengers. It's yeah. close. I'd rather I mean, talk about that than the Avengers. That is the movie where a girl keeps her boyfriend's head alive by connecting it to her super atomic heart. <laughs> sure. Yeah, you know, there's something to be said about a movie that does that. Yeah. But sure. like, again, the, the, the Zoller thing, the De Palma thing, to some extent, David Robert Mitch went under the Silver Lake. Like, I love the idea of these films of obvious intent, but it's not obvious what the intent always is. Yeah. And they are absolutely readable as disastrously bad. No, and I, I I agree with that. And one of the things I like I have I have also very much enjoyed this year talking about all those movies in particular. Movies that might not get covered by X most popular movie podcasts, but that we we just firmly were like, Yep, we are one hundred percent talking about this. Like, gotta sit down and talk about the Zoller. Gotta sit down and talk about uh Mitchell's Under the Silver Lake. Like, gotta just really peel back the layers on these fucking things and talk about them because like crawl that's the next we one. are going to talk for about crawl for three hours <laughs> over the course of three different podcasts it's going to be great i'm going to find a, a an alligator expert i'm going to have them on for one of the episodes <laughs> are we sure it's not a crocodile i'm pretty sure it's a gator okay you you better start researching now i just you don't want to get the wrong expert the, the this is we're going off topic but i'm pretty sure that the poster legitimately has a danger sign about alligators on it okay yeah, yeah. let's no, let's I, on I, this yeah. <laughs> whether it's a, a crocodile or an alligator my only hope for crawl is that it's not a metaphor 
I don't want a symbolic monster. I just want like an angry reptile trying to eat people. It'd be really, really nice if you could just dial it down and not have this movie mean anything. This is what I'm really hoping for from the trailer. I am. Because this is the same guy, sorry, who made when he made Hills Have Eyes. He has that bit where the kid is walking in the desert looking for his dog, whose name is Beauty. Do you remember this? And the kid is walking among the dunes screaming, Beauty, Beauty, Beauty for five minutes. I'm like, I hate this film so much. I hate you, Alexander Aja, and your significant (laughs) mongering as you're having this kid screaming, Beauty, 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 over the shots of the desert dunes. I'm like, fuck off. That's also the movie where the nerdy dad kills uh, a mutant with like an American flag. And I think America, the beautiful starts playing on the electric guitar. Yeah. So like if in crawl, if in crawl, he could not do those things and just have a, a, an alligator or a crocodile or whatever, trying to eat people in a house, I think it would be a big step forward for him artistically. And I'm rooting for it. Well, that's, um, I mean, that's one of the things I I love about like Yama Colasera. I mean, like, Oh yeah, the, the shallows was just like, yeah, there's a shark. Does it mean anything? No, it's just a big fucking shark, man. Like, have you guys have you guys done a Jean Colette Sarah podcast? Uh, I mean, multiple. we did that. We we've and, done uh, a the bunch cuter, of them. The shallows. I, I think, think you guys did run all night. When I'm I was sure we did run all night. Yeah, yeah. That guy, that guy rules. All, 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 all props to Jean Colette Sarah. He's great. He is yeah. legitimately one of my the people who like when I hear he has a movie I like clear my schedule. It's it's oh, yeah. over for me. It's just like yeah. um like people were just shocked at how excited I was for the shallows and then again for the commuter and I was just like what are you talking about? This is like modern auteur masterpieces. So good. They're we so talked good. about nonstop. How could we forget about nonstop? Oh, nonstop. Nonstop yeah. is great. I use the gifts of um, uh, Liam Neeson screaming, I'm not a good man. I'm not a good father <laughs> all the time <laughs> because I'm constantly like, just like defending myself against people. And whenever I get to like a frantic degree, I just send those to them where it's like, I'm not a good father. I'm not a good man, but I'm not trying to hijack this plane. I'm trying to (laughs) save it. That's become like my go-to defense for anything that I like accidentally mess up on. Anyway, um, so join us when we talk about crawl for the next seven weeks. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I think that that is, uh, that is all for today. So, Adam, thank you so much for joining us and putting up with us. <laughs> no, it was it was it was my pleasure. Thank you guys for for having me, and I'm sure that this podcast will be cited as a uh, a landmark in uh, domino domino studies. You guys <laughs> people ever, people you guys start writing the book on domino, and they're going to be like, as heard in the podcast, uh, the film stage show. Well, I actually saw actually a call for papers for an academic collection on what they're calling like late, late De Palma, you know, mm-hmm. on this somewhat wayward decade that he's had maybe since, since Femme Fatale, which is kind of the last time that everyone could agree that he made something that was really good. Most people thought so, you know, I'm sure Domino will, will figure into that book. So you 100%. guys maybe, maybe cited, but thank you guys for having me. It was a pleasure. All right. And uh, ladies and gentlemen at home, don't forget that you can get a free 30-day trial subscription to movie by going to mubi.com slash filmstage. Also, don't forget to go to patreon.com slash filmstage show to give us your money. <laughs> Next week, we are apparently talking about the souvenir. So look forward to that. Uh, 
but yeah, let's uh, tell the fine people at home where we can be found between now and the next time that we appear on their podcast apps. So let's start with uh, our esteemed guest, Adam Naiman. People want to find you online. Where can they find you? Uh, they can find me tweeting about the Raptor game tomorrow, <laughs> uh, but I'm at uh, Bro from Another, and you can read me in The Ringer or Cinemascope or Reverse Shot or, or Sight and Sound. All right. Bill Graham. Uh, you can find me online at Twitter, uh, K- at CableBFG, and you can also find me on the Slack channel. All right. Michael Snydell. You can find me on Twitter at, at Snydell, and uh, I write occasionally. I actually wrote this week about uh, Rolling Thunder Review, uh, Martin Scorsese's new Bob Dylan uh, by or Bob Dylan uh, concert documentary, biopic. <laughs> um, and I'm also on uh, Letterboxd, uh, just under Michael Snydell. So excited we're getting so much Scorsese this year. The Irishman will be out soon. It's a, it's a good one. Yeah. All right. Um, as for me, you can find me at my personal site, brianjrowan.com. Uh, follow me on Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff, at brianjrowan. And, of course, you can find my writing reviews and every episode of this podcast at thefilmstage.com. So, ladies and gentlemen, that is all. Join us next when we'll be talking about the souvenir. Until then, thank you for joining us and tune in next time. <laughs>